I don't wanna go to work I just wanna chill and play All day Looking dead in the face and say I wish I could just be still asleep While you work Welcome to the Jobs Blow podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Haas, and this is the podcast for dreamers with and without day jobs. Today's show is called Follow the Leader with author of The Followers, Radia Gleese. Thank you and welcome to the show, Radia. Hey, Brianna. Nice to be here. Thank you. I usually start my show out with a quote, and it's generally an inspirational quote, but since this show is going to be a little different, I just chose a quote about our, our subject. So the quote is, a cult is a religion with no political power. And that was a quote from Tom Wolfe, the writer. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that before we dive in to why we're here, just because I feel like when he said it, maybe it was relevant, but I don't know that it's relevant today. I, I don't think it's relevant at all. I think actually what's happening, the political power that is really the the underlying force is uh, the evangelical movement. What we're seeing in America today is what I would consider the Western version or the American Taliban. This is a serious theocracy that has been trying to get momentum for the last 80 years. And in my book, there is a chapter entitled The Mother of All Cults. And actually, my book has about 284 citations. I did two and a half years uh, research on all kinds of things, on anything from taking it from the diagnostic manual of uh, mental disorders to some great thinkers on, on the idea of cults, groupthink, mind control, the history of authoritarian uh, regimes to the history of American underlining authoritarian that that's kind of coming to the surface today. Mm -hmm. So I would disagree with Wolf completely, entirely. And I would say, you know, Jeff Charlotte, who wrote two books, he wrote uh, The Family and then he wrote C Street. They're very weighty books. A lot of the books that I've read that I have excerpts from I've sort of, I've done all of the laborious work of reading sort of the dry material and putting it in a little bit more palatable menu for the average person who, you know, comes home from a hard day and was, doesn't want to slog through all of the, all of the dry details. So I sort of put it in his two books in one chapter for you to tell you what's going on in the United States and what is the seedy underbelly the theocratic underbelly of the evangelical movement, and specifically the family. The family has been sort of in our American politics, not only in every branch of our government, but has now sort of really come to the surface where we are seeing the the people, the 174 uh, members of the uh, of Congress who disavowed Biden's election. If, if you comb through who they are, they're all members of the family. Wow. Um, well, I don't want to go too far down this path because I don't either. It's but, super interesting, but not why, yeah. why you are here. You that's are here. right. So, so read the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are here because if that's in your book that we're here to talk about, yes, they should read the the followers, right? Yeah. They should read the them. followers, holy hell, and disciples of narcissistic leaders. Because there's a few books out there entitled The Followers. So it'd be The Followers, Holy Hell, and The Disciple of Narcissistic Leaders. Right. So to get to why you are here, you are here to talk to us about a different journey, not necessarily a career path, but a life journey that took you into a cult for 25 years. Yeah. 25 years. Yeah. It's a huge piece of your life. Um, and before the show, we were talking about the fact that a lot of people say to you, I would never end up in a cult. Like, how could you end up in a cult? I really I'm interested to hear about this journey. And I would love to start. I know it. I think it began in Hollywood. You lived in California. I, I lived in Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, so look, talk to us about how you how how you joined a cult. Well, you know, and. <laughs> 
it, that is a long story. That's why I wrote a whole book on it. But um, I did. I was born and grew up in Brentwood, um, which is, you know, OJ's neighborhood. So I, I grew up in a uh, affluent neighborhood, uh, an affluent society, uh, went to private Catholic school started with Catholicism. I left Catholicism at the age of seven, which is the age of reason to the Catholics, because it wasn't reasonable to me. Um, although I continued on through Catholic school up until high school. In ninth grade, we were studying comparative religions. Now, you have to understand when I was growing up, I was born in the 50s. So I was 50s, 60s, 70s in Los Angeles, in California, at the height of huge cultural changes, like massive. We went, you know, from leave it to beaver to uh, flower power, you know. And so there was all kinds of cultural shifts that were going on. And anyone who wanted to think outside of the box was going with the cultural movement. They were just sort of not accepting the old traditional white male paradigm, which is really what it was. Um, and what's reemerging. Once again, and, and and what is trying to get its gain its traction back, and it's been trying for since the '60s. It was really the '60s that started this movement, but it's taken all these years to try and really gain political ground to grasp that again. I was there really in the height of the cultural movement in Hollywood, in the rock and roll industry, you know, in the movie industry. And, and, and all of these cultural shifts were reflecting civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, all of these, you know, huge people. So I'm growing up in the middle of that, you know, as I sort of define myself as having one foot in a debutante satin slipper sipping tea at a charity event and the other barefoot and bell, bell bottoms, you know, on Topanga Beach. So I was sort of between those two worlds and wasn't really happy with the world that I was growing up in. It was very uh, superficial. My mother and father, even though they sent me through college, their interest was to find a wealthy man for me to marry. And that was it, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it was in those days. So I, I wasn't having that. So by the time I was in high school, I was studying comparative religions. So a lot of Eastern religion was also coming on to the scene, especially in Los Angeles. And the Beatles brought Maharishi to the world. And so the cultures were sort of in, intertwining with Eastern culture, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of these other isms besides Christianity. And so my generation was looking at those and being interested in those. So I was studying comparative religions and I came across a word nirvana. And I asked the teacher what it meant. And he said, well, you know, some yogis in India through a certain meditation experience God directly. Next question. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Is that true? And he said, well, apparently, you know, so I set off from the time I was about 14, looking for those meditation, anyone who actually experienced those meditation techniques, and could they show them to me. And so it took about another 14 years for me to, to find someone who said, yes, I experienced those meditations techniques, and I can teach them to you. So that's the short answer of that journey of how I got to that. And my book is in three parts. So the first part is my life growing up in Los Angeles at that time. What were some of the psychological things that were happening to me with some abuse and other things? And then that journey through that culture, which led me to the second section, which is called the Buddha field, which is that 25 years in the group. I know we, uh, talked, yeah. we talked a little bit about how religion could be considered a cult. And I know you you were in uh, the, the Catholic Church, but do you all feel also abuse? People that have suffered abuse are a little bit more susceptible to becoming involved with a cult? Or do you feel like it's anybody? It's just like a, t a moment, a time in your life. Well, really both, really both. And I'll, I'll, and I'll tell you why. Everybody's got 
their different motivations. Uh, one thing that I, I opened one of my chapters, the chapter called From the Catholic Church to the Road to Nirvana, and I open it with the realization that usually when you're running towards something, you're usually running from something. So that's a fact with a lot of people. So running towards and running from is kind of a, it's a nebulous idea because in some cases it can be running from abuse, as you say. And in some cases it can be running towards money and power and success. So what are they running from? They're running from the fear of being poor or being less than, you know, I always say when people say, well, you know, how could you be that stupid? How could you fall for that? And for those who know who Bernie Madoff is, mm -hmm. you think that all those millionaires that were taken by him were stupid? Weren't at well, all. It also seems like to the two driving forces of cults are either some eternal happiness that they promise you or right. making a ton of money. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Those you know, like which things. Yeah. We talked earlier about the Nexium cult and that had a lot to do about career. When you're running towards power and money, it can be the same thing as in my case, running towards enlightenment or union with God. Now, again, growing up as a Catholic, even though I left the tenets of Catholicism, I was still put in a position, which I think often religion does, you're, you're sort of thrown into this magical world where you see saints all around you, images of saints and angels and celestial beings, and you hear their stories of suffering and martyrdom, and they always have this sort of transcendental expression on their face. And so that's what I was looking for. What was that that they were experiencing? What was Jesus experiencing? What was Buddha experiencing? What were the saints experiencing? And why couldn't I? You know, so that was my direction. That was my goal. Other people, they're going for the power and money, but it is just as seductive. It is just as alluring. You know, I came from power and money. It was right. not impressive. So I was running from that. Right. I was well, running for something greater. And you see plenty of people uh, that come from uh, money that end up in cults. I mean, it's, you know, it. it Look it, at Patty Hearst. Yeah. Right. Or, or the in the um, the vow of uh, that actress's daughter ended up in it. And I'm blanking on her. It, absolutely. But I, what I wanted to say or ask is, so when you found this person who said that they could show you the nirvana or whatever, did you or was it in, was it a continuing promise that you'll eventually get there? Like, was there a moment that you were like, oh, my God, I found it and that's why you stayed? Or was it this? continuing promise that, oh no, you need to, cause like, I know in Scientology, you need to keep selling. You need to keep like to reach right. levels. Like what right. was the, what was the bait that kept you in there? So, so that is a really good question. And that within the group is also a complex scenario. So in the movie, Holy Hill, you see these guys and the story is really about the guys and the, and the leader was homosexual. Wait, so the girls had it. Before you tell the audience what Holy Hell is. So oh, they okay. So Holy Hell was a documentary that was done in 2016. It's now available on Amazon. Uh, it was one of the top 10 picks on Netflix for a few years and CNN bought it. And it was a, it was a biggie at Sundance. It was a great film. And Will Allen uh, was a member of the Buddha field. He was also a victim of the guru. Like in Nexium, where the women were sexual victims, in Holy Hell, it's the men that are sexual victims of the guru. So for women, we did not have the same experience that they did. Okay, so just to clarify that. To clarify it even more, there was about 150 of us, and I would say honestly that each one of us has, there's probably 150 different stories. When you're dealing with a narcissist, a, a, this is not just a narcissist, like we all have a little narcissism in, them, in us, um, especially people who get into the entertainment business or politics or whatever. But then there is a malignant narcissism and a malignant narcissist is usually uh, a sociopath. And they, this is not a character flaw. This is a disease. This is a, this is a mental disorder. So the leader was definitely had some real narcissistic tendencies 
And it's, there's usually a feedback loop between the followers and the leader. And the more adulation we would give them, the, the more powerful they would become and the sicker they would become. This is what happens to most leaders, whether they're political leaders or religious leaders, like the like Rainier in Nexium. You know, he started out being pretty full of himself, but the the constant I saw Nexium, the constant feeding and adulating this this guy as he's lying. He's a fraud, and so was Jaime, our guru, was total fraud from the get-go. Which we but to me, back to the question that I don't think we answered. Yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So in the beginning, it was all about the techniques. Now he stole these techniques. He lied and said that he had a you know a master and all of this. No, that's all bullshit. He basically stole these techniques from Maharaji Primpal Rawat. In the beginning it was all about the techniques. It had nothing to do with him. And he would say, I mean, in my initiation, he would say, this is your divine birthright. This has nothing to do with me. I'm just the, he used to refer to himself as the midwife. You know, he's just going to show you the techniques and then the rest is yours. So to answer your question, yes. Did I have some profound experiences? Absolutely. The four techniques are the light, the music, the word, and the nectar. And those are sort of transcendental experiences that you can have in these meditations. To further the conversation, what happened was, in the beginning, it was a very small group, very small group. The first people that I met, there were four of us, you know, then there were eight, then there were 15, then there were 30, then there were, you know, and it exponentially grew. We were not recruiting a lot of those words are misused. And they ask, you know, were you actively recruiting? To a person that is in that group, you start to adopt an air of exceptionalism. And so you don't think of it as recruiting. You think of it as you are more superior. And therefore, you are inviting people in to experience the beauty that you are experiencing, you understand. So it's, it's slightly different. It's nuanced. And when you come from that place of exceptionalism, and in some cases, for, for those of us who are really experiencing these profound experiences, you really start to create a spiritual ego. Mm-hmm. So, so we, I, didn't, I never thought of myself as a recruiter. It was, I saw friends of mine and people that I knew would enjoy this, that would love the community, love what we were doing. So I would invite them, right? And yeah, they they came in. So what's happening simultaneously is you're building a community of like-minded people. So that was a stronger force than anything. But as we did, you know, in the beginning, like in Nexium, like in other places, I loved the leader. I didn't know he was a liar. I didn't know he was a fraud and a fake. And and so <laughs> I loved him. And what do you do when you love a person like that? Well, you know, he's got everything. He's experiencing God directly. So what do you give him? Well, make him cookies. Hey, make him dinner. Hey, carry his books. Hey, you know. So we started doing that. And he started liking it, <laughs> you know. So in the beginning, it was all about connect to God's love. And then after a while, it changed to connect to my love. So we were feeding his narcissism and it was growing and growing. And so after a while, he stopped giving the techniques. That's why I say you're asking me a question that has got two sides. For the elders, and the elders were considered the initiates. Yes, we were, we were basing all of everything we were sharing on these meditation techniques. But for the ones who came in after us, that was the dangling carrot. And after a while, you know, we would tell them about these incredible experiences of light and music and love and blah, all of this. And that's what they wanted. And we did not know that he was not going to initiate them. So he started using the techniques as a dangling carrot and kept telling them, you're not ready. You're not worthy enough. You're not blah, blah, blah. So while he was telling them that, were they pain? Like what? No, no, not, not, yes and no. That's, that's complicated too. He wasn't really about money, although 
<laughs> the worst part about it is how he made his living was he was a hypnotherapist for God's sake. So we would pay him for hypnotherapy. So we would literally hand him our psyche every week. And so he knew all of our fears and all of the skeletons in our closets. And he knew about our past and whatever. So as a narcissist and as a sociopath, he would use that against us. So anytime you question him, and I questioned him a lot, he would go, oh, no, you remember what your father did when you were young? You're just projecting that on me. Right. And it was reasonable at the time. Yeah. So he could get out of any kind of challenge because he had he we handed him all the tools to do that. When people were not getting his juju, then he started with the parlor tricks, which I did not find out till 10 years after I left. He started doing. Things that in the old days, the seance people would do, they'd rig the room so that the table would rise and do all of that. So that's what he would do. And so originally it was all in public and whatever. And then his little practices like Shakti, of which he also stole from Muktananda, he would do in a private room. So he would use things like flashlights on your eyelids to think that you're seeing the light of God. All of these little parlor tricks, which I did not find out till years after I left. But so people would know they thought this was coming from him. Mm -hmm. And it was all fake. It was all a lie. Now, were some people experiencing um, transcendental experiences? Yes, I do think so. That's why some of the elders just kept talking about this and then the younger generations that were coming in would hear that and think we were getting it from him and that's the way he changed the narrative from connect to god's love to connect to my love and when i questioned him about it and we did i questioned him i was like what the fuck dude you know like what he would say well, good idea, because he had this weird little accent. Some people, not you, because he knew that he, he knew how to handle me, uh, need a living master. They need someone that they can touch and, and talk to and listen to and feel and be with in the physical presence. I am just being that for them. Right? And so at the time, I saw that, you know, one, every, nobody was complaining. Everybody was happy. Everyone. So our community was building and it was beautiful. And it was our community that was beautiful. And that's what kept me more than anything. And by about, about 1995, I was pretty much done with him. I was like, you know, he's not giving me any kind of spiritual nourishment whatsoever. But the community was now what I'd been with for 11 years. And I couldn't, I, my family was dead. I had pretty much burned all the bridges of my well, past. That's I wanted to ask you, what, while you were a part of this cult, did you turn, like you often see people push family away. They push their friends away. They get isolated. Did you do that? Were you living? Yes. You did. Well, you again, it goes back to the feeling of, uh, or, or this idea of exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much that I pushed my family away, but after a while, I could no longer relate to them. And they, you know, they were still talking about very mediocre stuff, you know, the, the, the virtues of wholesale. And when are you going to find a man to marry? You know, right. so my community was so rich and it was I mean, we did some amazing things, really amazing exercises and amazing, you know, our conversations were always deep and rich about the universe and God and, you know, all of these things. And then I'd go home and it'd be like, you know, we're talking about nothing, you know. And so it wasn't so much that I pushed them away as that I couldn't, I couldn't relate to them. That's why I left in the first place. Why I left that world is because I couldn't relate to the mediocrity of my life which is funny now because you sound like a narcissist <laughs> like oh absolutely you know it, uh, well like he gave you know, all a little bit of narcissism so that you well like i said everybody's got a little narcissism in them when it becomes malignant when it becomes a sociopath has no ability to empathize they have no ability to feel anyone else that's when they're dangerous 
Were you not talking to your family when they passed then? Or I mean, were you? Yeah. Yes, I was. Oh, you were still oh, yeah. talking to them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Except for my brother disowned me for 10 years. But uh, oh, yeah, I talked to both my mother and father. I talked to my mother all the way up to the day before she died and my father as well. I still had a relationship, but a lot of the other ones. See, here's the thing about a sociopath. They can compartmentalize. So they will be whatever you want them or need them to be. With me, I had a different relationship than others. So with others, he was very emphatic about them not being with their family. Uh, with me, I don't think he thought that could fly, but he also understood that I had money. So there was a motivation for him in his mind for me to stay you know, connected to them. So he handled each person differently. He handled them the way he could use them. So it's like I said, there's 150 people and there's a, probably 150 different stories and so, uh, ev everyone's different. So while you were 25 years of your life, did, did you get married? Did you, were you like, I mean, no. no. So were you living amongst these people? Like how? We didn't live in a, in one place. Um, we had houses all over the city. Maybe there would be two to three to a house. And we all had different jobs. We all had our own careers, et cetera. I had my own career. But at nighttime or any other time, we were together every night. And it was clandestine. It was very, uh, you know, I could have my practice. I just had a client who just read an article about this. The, uh, the other day, and I've known her, she's been a client of mine for like 30 years. She goes, oh, my God, Radia. She said, were you in the group when I was going and seeing you? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and she said, oh, my God, I had no idea. And what so we lived client, a dual life. Client? Um, I'm a certified clinical nutritionist, biochemical analyst. OK, so, yeah. So, you know, I had a a, a, a practice with uh, another MD and a massage therapist in my center, in my clinic. There were other people, some of them were other practitioners, uh, chiropractors, uh, chefs, artists, musicians, designers, all kinds of really interesting, fascinating people. That's why we were drawn to each other for so many reasons. You, you know, talk, Do you still talk to any of them? Oh, sure. A lot of them that left are still my best friends. And honestly, when you live that long in that kind of environment, it's very difficult to come back into the world. Well, it's almost like an abusive marriage, right? 25 years of living a certain way with, you in know, a way. in this with in a way. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you will find you'll find narcissists in marriages. You know, it may be a spouse. It may be a boss. It may be a CEO to a company. It well, may don't be a they, say most, they say most CEOs are, are narcissists. You have to be and, and And yes, and like I said, narcissism in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It gives people uh, self-confidence to have a radio show or a podcast or a television show or to stand up and be a leader of a you know, legislature or whatever. You have to have a bit of self-confidence in yourself to even do that. And so narcissism can be, um, it can be helpful in that area. It's when it becomes malignant, when it becomes a pathology, that's when it's really serious. Well, and so that's my question to you too, because I, when I watch these shows about people who become involved with cults and quite honestly, in some cases of religion, when whatever you're following starts to suggest that you maybe not treat people well, or, you know, be unkind to others. Doesn't a part of you say to yourself, well, this seems the opposite of what we're here for. <laughs> like, I, I don't believe in that. Like, I'm just my mind. I'm bo it's boggled when I watch these shows and these people brand each other for someone or, you know, in the case of Scientology, they take them from their families and don't want them to. I don't understand what like in the mind, how you make that make sense? Well, again, that is very, very complex. And it depends on who the leader is. And it depends on what the nature of the cult is. My group, 
I had somebody who interviewed me who said, you know, are there good cults and are there bad cults? Or do you think, say, that the authority should intervene and, you know, and try and break up these cults? And first of all, good luck with that. Um, But second of all, like with mine, again, we didn't know about the abuses until Holy Hell came out. I didn't know the details of what happened with my brothers for 10 years after I left. So when I first got wind of one young man who was being seduced in his hypnotherapy, that's when I left. And when I left, I was an elder. Okay. So me leaving is not just, you can't just slip out the back door and think you won't be noticed. Right. So when I left, you know, my close elder friends said, you know, Hey, you know, come back, what are you doing? And, and why did you leave? And are you in your mind? And those were the words. And I said, no, I I left. And they said, why? I said, you want to know? And I told them. So then they left. And then that person left and that it was like dominoes. So the thing fell apart in about two weeks. It literally, yeah, it really disintegrated in about two weeks. And he fled. He took some people with him and very interesting. He had, for all the people that he denied the the knowing, the, the meditation techniques for 18 years, now suddenly he's going to give a knowing session. So some people went with him thinking, oh, my God, I put 18 years into this. I'm going, you know. Yeah, I go into that in the book. Uh, it was it was horrible. And so a lot of people left after that. And then he fled to uh, Hawaii and he's still in Hawaii and he started it up again. So there was a handful of people that stayed with him and he got, you know, now he's got, I think, 75 or 100 people back following him. Really? Yeah. Even though. And so the film has been out. The film is very well known. Right. He convinced them it's fake news, right? He convinced them, don't listen to that. You know, Will's just a disgruntled lover. This is just his, you know, way of getting back at me. And they believed him. Usually really skilled narcissists are pathological liars. And they're very good at it. They're very good at it. So if you love them and you're getting what you want out of it, you'll believe them. And they'll convince you. I I think too, I mean... I know we touched a little bit on politics, but I also feel like if they're saying what you want to believe, even if it's a lie, but they're telling you it, then you're absolutely more ready to like, yes, I, you know, line up behind them. So absolutely. Yeah. And that's why it's that's why it's very complex. And I go into that in depth in my book of what cognitive dissonance is. And I talk about um, three types of people that join cults. The first type I call the hummingbirds. They're the ones that sort of, I, I, I refer to, There's unless you're a sociopath, there's that line in the sand that you will not cross. You know, it's like there's finally that whatever. But there's a lot of gray lines that you will step over before you get to that line in the sand. And so the, the first type is, the, I call them the hummingbirds. They'll flitter around and they'll go from this ideology to that or this group or that, you know, spiritual, whatever, but they're not totally willing to totally commit to the, to the dogma. Um, and if, as soon as the go, they'll step over a few gray lines, but as soon as the going gets tough, they're out of there. Then the second type are the soldiers on a mission. That was more the, the what I was. Remember when I was 14, I was looking for Nirvana. And so I was on a mission to find Nirvana. I wanted to find that union with God. So once I got in and I was experiencing some of those meditation techniques, being in that community afforded me to live the kind of lifestyle, diet, lifestyle, discipline, to stay devoted to that, to stay in there and to be everyone in my environment was supportive of that. Right. So that's a soldier on a mission. Then you've got your kamikaze. (laughs) And those are the people that will kill or die for the leader. They have no line in the sand. This is the Jim Jones and the Charlie Manson and, and those kinds of people. So everybody has, you know, those thresholds that they will put up with. And if they're convinced, if they're convinced enough to brand somebody, 
then uh, their line in the sand is way out, <laughs> way out here, you know. But like I said, there's all kinds of reasons why they make those choices. Much of it is is um, in a lot of ways fear to leave. Like, for example, we had people who left or I had people who left once by 1995. I wanted to leave. I didn't leave for 11 years. Oh. I didn't leave till 06. So I was conflicted for 11 years. But here were some of the here is the variables. This was my community and I loved them. This was my family. These were my best friends. We had shared things that were so intimate. No family member of mine ever knew me as well as they did. So knowing that if I were to leave them, I would leave them forever. So that's the thing. You see people who leave before you and the leader will usually demonize them, ostracize them, and the group themselves will sort of cannibalize, you know, it's sort of like a Lord of the Flies, mm -hmm. you know, and anyone who is now not subscribing to your belief or your ideology is now the enemy. Right. So and you I, get to you see that in both the Scientology documentary and the Vatican. Yes. Both of them. So it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And, you know, we talked about uh, somebody who's being married to a narcissist or a sociopath. It can be extremely dangerous and there may not be a safe way to get out. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of intestinal fortitude to finally find that line in the sand and do whatever it takes to leave. And when I left, um, all of my greatest fears happened. I was demonized. I was ostracized. He plotted with people to have me taken out. It's but not an easy thing. But you, you said people followed you, right? I mean, not long after you left. Yes, some of them did. And everybody was in a state of shock and confusion. I had some of my best friends who didn't speak to me for three years. My business partner didn't speak to me. They stayed in. Other people who left, people just sort of scattered, you know. The only people that are still around that are still in Texas is, I don't know, I have about two or three people in Texas that I know that I still am with. So I went from 150 to to, uh, Wait, you so know. you went from uh, Hollywood to tech to, um, was it? Yeah, Austin? yeah we, we moved from Hollywood in 1991. Uh, we actually fled Los Angeles. And the reason why is because there was a guy who was in the group who had a uh, sort of lust towards one of the young women. And he was older and very unattractive and she wasn't attracted to him. And he started he started projecting that she wasn't attracted to him because she was brainwashed. And so he started stalking her and started leaving very dangerous letters on the leader's car and whatever, how he was going to kidnap her and have her deprogrammed and kill him and hurt me and whatever. So I uh, put him in jail. And so the, the DA basically said, we can only hold him for three months and he's going to come out being really pissed. So you better leave. Oh, so wow. we left. Yeah. So it was, it was a sort of under duress. And that is when, that's when the leader really started to change. His personality got more and more paranoid and frightened. So it used to be come one, come all, you know, come join, you know, and then poof, the doors locked, you know, and, and it became clandestine and secretive. When we finally landed in Austin, Texas, which is where we ended up. And so we were in Austin and everything was different. Like everybody scattered for a while. They went to different cities and places so that the guy couldn't find us. And then we all reconvened in Austin. But once we did, everything was different. All right. And there was new people and, you know. So well, so I so. Wanted, so you mentioned you left in 06 uh, and it's been 15 years. How long did it take you to kind of, I don't know, do you feel like you're back to, I don't Is know. Is there a normal? Yeah, I don't even know um, because you pretty much grew up in it. So yeah, my adult life for sure. Um, and when I got out, I was like uh, 54, <laughs> you know, so I was an old lady by the time I got out. And uh, so, yeah, what when I left, it was kind of, and I 
talk a lot about that in the book. Um, I sort of wanted to, I didn't want to look back. It's like I've made that decision. It was a really hard decision. Yes. Did I lose everything? Yes. Was I demonized and ostracized? Was my life, did it explode? Yes, it did. So I didn't want to look back, you know. So 10 years later, Will comes out with this film. And now there was about eight of us, I think, that were interviewed in the film. And I was one of them. We all went to Sundance. We hadn't seen the film. We hadn't seen anything. So he had 30 years of archival footage. Oh, wow. And so here we are seeing our life splayed out on the big screen with a whole bunch of strangers. And it was another sort of traumatizing shock because here's all my brothers telling their story that I had never heard before. So this was 10 years later and I was hearing these horrible stories of what happened to them. And I was already gone, you know, it's like, what, you know? So that is when I really decided to analyze my past and to study, how does this happen? How did this happen to me? Like I said to you, you know, some people in the audience said, I'd never be that stupid, right? Well, like I said, I'm neither stupid nor uneducated. How did that happen? Like, what? You know, so I, I had to go back and and analyze everything about my life from the time I was born, basically, to try and find the rhyme and reason, what brought me there, what kept me there, what made me be so um, vulnerable. Why did I, yeah, why did I adopt cognitive dissonance? Why did I not listen to my intuitive self, you know? Why did I allow myself to be lied to and duped? And so that's really what my book was about is, you know, doing that analysis of how did that happen? And that's what I've done in the last five years to try and answer some of those questions and also answer them, not just for me, but to maybe help other people who are either in a cult or either trying to get out of a cult or have relatives or friends that they suspect are in and they don't know what to do and they don't understand their behavior. They don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So that's why I wrote the book is to maybe answer some of those questions for people, um, maybe give some advice on people who, people who are in the cult, this book is not for them. Because no, they I was going to say the book, it's a you got to get a certain timeline in there. Yeah, <laughs> if you're yeah. already in the cult, you're probably too late. So it's, it's, it's too late. It took, took me 25 years. Yeah. You know, so this isn't for them. It's for them who have niggling dull, dull, doubts in their life of why they're there. It may be for them, but for the ones that are just totally in, when the movie came out, we did a a premiere in Hawaii. Oh, wow. And we did a Q&A in Hawaii, right? Like a few miles from this guy, right? And there were some people who he sent to combat us. And then there were some people who were just la, 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 la. It's all a lie. I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to hear it. I was told it's fake news, blah, blah, blah. So we did. We did a, a confrontation on the stage and we did have to have the police come down and kind of like make sure that there wasn't a war. So I knew and we all know we've been there. They're not going to listen to us. They're not. They're not going to look at my book. They're not going to look at the film. No. They don't want to know the truth. Well, and I know we touched on religion earlier. I, I'll never forget when I was in college and I think it was an anthropology class. The professor, it was right around the time of David Koresh in the Branch Davidian. Yeah. And the professor said, who's to say that Jesus Christ wasn't a, Dave, a David Koresh of his time? And in that, I had never, he was. but I like, it was in that moment, everything that I had been taught growing up came crashing down. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. And it like, that's all it took for me. And I was like, okay, I have to reconsider everything that I've essentially been programmed because my mom took us to a variety. I mean, we started out as Catholic and we were Lutheran and we were this and yeah. that and, you know, and I, I've decided to just be agnostic and do my own thing because I'm just, just here to be a good person. 
Make sure. Well, I, th- I, I think you will enjoy my last two chapters because I've spent an entire life, you know, you asked me, about, did I, was I married? Did I have children? Whatever. No, I didn't. So I spent the majority of my life in contemplative practice. You know, so people ask me in all the Q&As, what did you get out of it? Do you still believe in God? Do you, you know, why didn't you leave? Whatever. And so I wrap it up in the last two chapters of the book. And honestly, sometimes I have to go back and read my own two chapters when I forget what I know to be true and what I understand, you know, what I, what have I gotten out of this? And honestly, it's like, do I regret all of that? I don't. I don't. Because people don't stay because, for the most part, most people don't. They don't stay because they're being tortured. They stay because they're getting some things out of it. And I got a lot out of it. And so did everybody else in the Buddha field. They were really wonderful people, really beautiful people. And as I said, when when this uh, interviewer asked me, um, do you think that the authority should have come in and break this all up? I would have been really pissed. If some cop came in and tried to break up our community, like, how dare you? You have no idea what we're doing. Right? Mm-hmm. Again, we didn't know that there was some bad things going on. Right. But the good things that were happening were profound to us. And so, you know, that's a real tough question. Our group was all about love. Our group was all about unconditional love. And we were trying to learn how to love unconditionally. And we were learning a lot, you know, and we were we were self-analyzing ourselves always. Like, you know, we would do we would do S training for 25 years, you know, like it was intense. We were doing very, very intense introspection. We did get a lot out of it. And and for the most part, because everyone had their own careers. And most of them were in service-oriented careers. I, w- I am a holistic practitioner. I had, you know, other, my friends were chiropractors and massage therapists and nutritionists. And, you know, so we were all in service-oriented kinds of fields. Mm-hmm. And it's because that was our dharma. That was our practice of love and selfless service. So for a narcissist, what a perfect little place for them to get their claws into. because. He was taking our innocence. I mean, most of us were very sincere in our journey and in our mission of devotion to something higher than ourselves. And so for a narcissistic sociopath, whoa, that works out really well. Because every time you question him, he go, oh, no, that you're just in your ego. Right. Well, it, out of your ego. look, as far as cults go, it seems like you didn't. <laughs> You didn't have the worst experience. I mean, no, we didn't have any branding. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to find the positive, you know? Yeah. yeah, no, no, we, we were beautiful. And we, we, the people that are, that I'm still connected to, I've been connected to for 40 some odd years now, and they are really still very beautiful, you know? Right. Well, I'm um, glad that you have that. I mean, yeah. you know, because to walk yeah. away from something like that and have nothing, have no, your family's gone and to. I did for a while. I did for a few years because everyone was in such a state of confusion. They were, they were hurt and traumatized and confused and, and everyone just kind of wanted to find their corners, you know, for a while. Right. So I, I was isolated. Well, and you know, people could overcome, you know, the trauma. Well, I want to, I want to get to my, my game, but one other thing I wanted to, I don't know if you watched the Tiger King that was on Netflix. I watched part of it. Yes. Because I mean, there, that's a cult. It was not a big cult, but the the other gentleman that ran the uh, animals, he, that was definitely a cult (laughs) where all the people working for nothing. So, you know, they're, they're everywhere. And, and that brings me, that brings me to my game, which is cult or culture. I'm gonna um, name a, some things that are popular in American culture and get your take. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first thing is Greek life, fraternities and sororities. Um, I do think definitely they have a cult atmosphere. I definitely do. It's it's that um, 
It's that community kind of elitism that I talked about, that exceptionalism. And, and in sororities and fraternities, they breed exceptionalism. That's basically what they're all about. So, yeah, I would say cult. Okay. What about Fanalos? They're the, the fan, very Manalo fans. Yeah. So that's a tricky one because we have to be careful with the word cult. I have a chapter, which is actually one of my funniest chapters called What is a Cult? It's complicated. And I go through I go through the def, the, the Webster's dictionary definition of all of the definitions of how you define and recognize a cult. And, you know, if you're first of all, if you're defining it as a a number, a number of people, if it's small, it's a cult. If it's big, it's it's a religion. If that would be the case, I said, I said, so if if you're defining it as they said fans, the, one of the definitions was a, a fan, the um, the actors cult of fans, the the singers cult of fans, you know, and I said, and and so what is it with Beyonce anyway? Right. And if you were to define her as as a um if if the size matters, then she'd be a full blown religion. Oh yeah. Right? So that's more tongue in cheek. Just because you like something or love something does not mean you're in a cult. Well, so we I have to be you, careful of that. I can tell you, if Barry Manilow starts a cult, I might join. Okay, so just a heads up. Right. You love yeah. music, Barry. Nobody yeah. bridges. Nobody bridges like that guy. Um, yeah. So, right. How about so? Just because you like something. And everybody likes the same thing does not make it a cult. Okay. What about um, Pokemon players? Same thing. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a game and people, um, you know, it's, it's something that, it, that people enjoy. And it doesn't mean that they're in a cult. There's people who love Star Trekkies. There's people who love Lord of the Rings and they, you know, they all gather and get into that. It's, it, that does not make them a cult. Or if it does, it's a good cult. <laughs> yeah. All right. And the last one I have is this new Peloton craze that everyone is. You know, a, and a craze or a fad or whatever. Be careful with that. It is a, it's a craze. I don't I think, think it's a cult. It could turn into one though. Like we work. I'm sorry. It, it, it could. I don't know that much about, I only know what Peloton is. I don't know the, inter, the ins and outs, but I will say this at the end, this is, kind of harsh, but I, I, I quote um, a, a famous author who said something that I think is so profound. What he said was, one man cutting off a woman's clitoris is a monster. Hundreds of men doing it is a culture. Amen. Right? 100% true. So, yeah, you know, we, we really have to discern and we have to be careful of words such as cult. Cult is a word that you can throw up on somebody and then you all already automatically have a, up an idea of what they're about. Same thing with brainwashing. Oh, they're brainwashed. Okay. Well, it's the, just like the, terrorist in this country. The, the literal translation of brainwash means that you have been radicalized in your belief, usually under duress, imprisonment, or torture. That is brainwashed. None of us were brainwashed. None of us. There's a difference between conformity, groupthink, and brainwashed, right? But the problem, and you mentioned it too, when you grow up as a child and you are indoctrinated into a belief, into a religion or whatever, um, it is a conformity and a groupthink kind of thing. You're not being tortured for the most, hopefully, you know, you're not being imprisoned, but you are in a way um, structurally in a society being imprisoned because if you are of a certain religion, then you believe everybody else is the unsaved or the sinners or the whatever. And so we start defining each other as us and them. And that becomes very dangerous. And that's prevalent in our society, especially today. Well, so does the whole concept of a leader or putting someone in a position of supreme authority, you right. know, just like with right. priests who were molesting children, but no one yes. believed it. I mean, anytime exactly. you give that power to somebody, even the president, exactly. anytime you yes. give that sort of power to somebody, you know, no yeah. one should have absolute, 
right? Yeah, and we've lost we've lost our idea of what the democratic structure is supposed to be. We've lost that. And I heard somebody on uh, Bill Maher, he was talking and he was an African-American and he said, um, he said, uh, Biden has failed us. He did not give us what he promised. And I just wanted to jump through the television when he said that, because not that what he's saying isn't true, but Biden is not a king. Yeah. Biden cannot, you know, wave a magic wand and give you everything you want. OK, that we still it's dwindling, but we still have three branches of government. And so Biden is not a lawmaker. He either signs or vetoes a law, but he doesn't have anything to do with those details. So when you point your finger at one person, OK, when we have, you know, we have 100 senators you know, and 435 Congress members that make those decisions, right? And we have a judicial system over here and we have these three branches of government. We have to stop saying Biden or Trump or whomever is that person at the top in our society so far does not have that power. They are not the king. So we, we get, we're starting to get into that mindset. And so we're saying horrible things, you know, Okay, Brandon, you know, that's the new, you know, nomenclature. These kinds of things are starting to become cult-like because they're turning those leaders into gods. And the god is either failing them because they're not getting what they want or they're succeeding. Or in most cases, they don't even know. They're just well, this is a whole other conversation we could have because then we can <laughs> talk about how social media is making it worse. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you so much for coming on my show. It was a pleasure. Very um, fun. This was an interesting um, switch from my usual uh, conversation about a career path, but I find it very interesting and I'm super appreciative. And, you know, we could also talk about the people that work for companies for 20 years that get into a cult-like mentality and then suddenly they're Absolutely. not anymore and they get thrown out. I mean, how is that different? But I digress. Exactly. I digress. Yeah. I just have to say this, that that the book, The Followers, Holy Hell and the Disciple of Narcissistic Leaders, it's not a book about me per se. And it's not a book about a small little clandestine group of gullible people. It's about all of us. It's about us today. And that's why I wrote it. I don't really care what people know about my personal life. This is really a book for everybody. And that's why I wrote it. And I hope people enjoy it. Well, so get it on Amazon. Yes, and it's also it's also on Audible. So if you don't like to read, it's in my voice. And also they can watch Holy Hell on Amazon as well. See Holy Hell. And I would say see Holy Hell so that you have these are archival footage. So you can see the character. You can see us. These are real people. So when you read my book, you know who I'm talking about. Thank God you cult members like to videotape everything because it makes great. Right. That's right. Yeah, well, well, Will was always a videographer. He always was. That's just his virtuosity. And he's a brilliant filmmaker. So he was filming his life. All right. He didn't know. He didn't know it would turn into a documentary about the trauma of his life. He didn't think that when he was doing it. (laughs) All right. So what's your website? It's Radia, R-A-D-H-I-A. Everybody throws that H wherever they want to. Gleis, G-L-E-I-S dot com. And social media handles? It's Facebook, Radia Gleese, slash Radia Gleese. My Twitter is Radia underscore Gleese. My LinkedIn is Radia Gleese. Just just follow my name, you know. And if you don't, if you, you know, if you can't write all of this down, go to RadiaGleese.com because all of my links to all of my social networks are there too. And you can, uh, there's articles and uh, other interviews and, my media page is there and also my articles that I've written on various subjects. My, my editor, my editor said, you've got to stop, Radia. You, you know, this is an ongoing thing. You know, I said, okay, okay, I'll stop. Um, So I'm hoping that everybody will enjoy the book. I've written a lot of humor in it. It's uh, irreverent for sure, but I'm, I'm hoping that people will get a lot out of it. Well, thank you. It's entertaining. (laughs) All right. right. I really appreciate it. This is Jabs Jabs 
Thank you. You can uh, find us at jobsblowpodcast.com, jobsblowpodcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'm Brianna Haas. Thank you so much and have a good night. <laughs>